0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Now we've got to hurry because you're going to see Barbie. That's correct. Okay. So
0: I'd like to get a shifty on if that's all right. I haven't worn anything pink. We're going against the grain. Oh. Um, yes. But I think now we've we've uh, we've passed the kind of peak hype of
1: the launch. Mm. I think we'll be all right. Do you think it's quite a cool time to go now? I think so. Very yeah. much so. I'm waiting until my um, youngest child gets back from her apparently never-ending tour of Europe and we're going to go or Lovely. so she tells me do you want me to tell you what the plot's about do you think I'll be converted to feminism after it I think there's a strong possibility okay well yes. I'm looking forward to it yeah. I hope it's not propaganda
0: well I don't know uh, I, I will uh, I will keep it in my thoughts about Barbie until you've been to sit oh two. no no
1: no I'd like because you know I'm interested. no
0: we can no because you've asked me about Greg Wallace to watch Greg Wallace's Miracle Meet which I failed to do last night <laughs> Well, all this morning very much your homework <laughs> between now and tomorrow but I'm going to make sure that I make room for it in my busy day tomorrow
1: morning before coming to work. So we can talk about that. um, Our big guest is Nicholas Mostyn, a High Court judge, uh, and he's actually a really interesting guy, so you'll hear from him in a couple of minutes' time. But before Fiona goes to the cinema, we definitely want more blended holiday fun. We do... Dear Jane and Fee, uh, says uh, this correspondent,
0: who will remain anonymous, as will everybody on this subject. (laughs) I write this from my bedroom of a Spanish villa where I'm nine days and counting into a (laughs) two-week holiday with the following cast of characters. My young son, my partner, my partner's two teenage children, my partner's mother, my partner's brother and niece, my mother, my brother, my (laughs) brother's wife and his young daughter. So far, I'm waiting for the relaxing holiday feeling to kick in, and I'm wondering if I will ever get past page nine of my 320-page book without someone asking me where the sun cream is, what time the next meal will be, or making a poorly-veiled critical remark about another member of our group on the pretense that it's made out of concern. Now, this is a theme that is developing, isn't it? That it's only out of love. (laughs) But actually what you're saying is just mean. There are differences of opinion about parenting, cooking, driving money, swimming pool safety... That's a biggie, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. And pretty much everything else. Have you waited an hour? It's been a big lunch. You're letting her swim now? That kind of thing. It's absolutely exhausting. One young child has to go to bed at 7pm, while another (laughs) one of similar age is allowed to stay up until 11. That (laughs) issue alone creates tension every single day. I feel caught in the middle and judged by the others. I seem to almost always either be preparing a meal or cleaning up after the last one. I fantasise about the days when my main holiday concern was the depth... And longevity of my tan and whether to have a bath before or after dinner. I love my family, but this is exhausting. I've decided that in future I will not say that I'm going on holiday, but that I'm taking my so on holiday. What son, I think. I'm taking my son on holiday because it's that because that's what it feels like. There are moments of relaxation and fun, and the kids are having a great time, but these holidays are difficult for adults, and I think it's easier if that can be acknowledged. We hear you, sister, because a family holiday like that uh, is not a holiday for you. And I remember somebody uh, saying something very wise when my two were toddlers, that a holiday is just... Worse than being at home, you just take all of your problems mm. and your difficulties with you to yeah. a place that doesn't have your own Lego or kitchen. That's right. And
1: there are holidays that are like that. And there? I mean, sometimes I remember my mum used to particularly hate our family holidays. I think she'd even admit that now, because she had to do everything she did at home, but in a more confined space. Yeah. So that's <laughs> so the thing. So you don't have point? your kitchen, your no, toys in a caravan. Your books. You can't yeah. unless you're very fortunate and you've got some really luxy thing. It's just really tough. Mm. And there was a picture in one of the newspapers today, of I think it was the pier at Eastbourne and it was grey and wet and there was a single tourist on the pier wearing full waterproofs (laughs) with a a monstrous pack-a-mac on and just looking redoubtable but long-suffering. And this is, it's not been easy. No. It's really We're only not. about
0: two days away from one of the tabloids doing How to Wear Your Sou'wester
1: with but, Pride. No, I think the Times today has given in and got a double-page feature on how to survive this British summer uh, with lots of advice yeah. on raincoats. Um, but, no, it's, it's, um,
0: but it's the... Um, it's people having different attitudes to parents oh, is just I, such
1: a I, cause I, of friction. It, it makes my, my... I can feel my bowels jangling in sympathy with that correspondent. The whole business of the kiddie has got to be in bed at seven and quite possibly also needs a very important afternoon nap at incredibly specific times. And then the other young person of the same age who's still hanging around being profoundly irritating at 11 o'clock. Yeah. I mean, it's it's honestly... It's, and there's always someone who won't have cocoa Pops at breakfast. Oh, God. and and,
0: you know they have to be hidden in a cupboard
1: (laughs) it's just oh
0: it's where friendships and family can fail Uh, so if if it is cathartic for you to get it off your chest then we would love to hear your stories of difficult family holidays
1: yeah or just difficult holidays and um uh, i we will always protect you so don't worry share the dirt but we'll keep your name to ourselves Mm. You're, you're safe here this is a safe space. Your family aren't here. Yeah. Is that sincere enough or slightly frightening? It was a little bit frightening. Yes, I, felt I think it was, it was
0: <laughs> the way that you said safe space made me feel really, really yeah, unsafe. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking it's she's not a safe space for me. <laughs> This is Anne who joined us from Calgary hello, in Canada uh, who says your conversations with each other ever since the previous one have been a mainstay in my life weekly uh, for your frank discussion on every topic imaginable. You say lots of kind things and thank you very much for that Anne ending with uh, your relationship with each other plays out honestly, playfully and with a touch of frisson. <laughs> Too right. I married my London born husband in the noughties when I was in my 50s, a loving good man, and through him I became a devotee of the BBC. The Guardian, and dare I say, The Daily Mail. He's not impressed by that. Well, can I suggest, and you try The Times. <laughs> Ten years ago, when he was diagnosed, no I mean it, with a progressive neurodegenerative condition. I wept for a long time and couldn't sleep at all for years and what got me through uh, was Desert Island Discs, Woman's Hour, unfortunately, and look, we're now here for you. Uh, you go on to say that you have read the book in the book club and we're delighted uh, that you managed to get to the end of it. And it's the thing at the end, actually, Anne, that I think we'd really like to hear more thoughts on. Anne says, I don't have children and have appreciated learning from you both how precious the mothering bond has been in your lives. I respect this sentiment, but at times from what I've witnessed in the lives of friends and family, I've wondered if the experience of motherhood is not over-romanticised as the ideal. Dare a woman say that being a mother whilst important was a piece of her life and not the whole of her life, or necessarily the best part of her life. Maybe I'm being overly sentimental. I've lived a life of service and loving care to others and yet can feel undervalued because I haven't had a child and I'd be curious to hear from your listeners and other women with experiences of not being mothers and yet having rich and meaningful relationships that do make a difference in people's lives. With kindest regards, uh, Anne. Well, it's lovely to hear from you, Anne, and I think we probably will get lots of response Mm. to that. And do you know what? The bit that stood out for me, Jane, was her question about dare a woman say that having children isn't necessarily the best part of her life. And I think that's a little bit of a taboo. And I think there are lots of ways that women uh, can work into a conversation uh, how other parts of their life are going really well are really important are succeeding and Mm. all of that i think it's still hard for women who want to be able to say i'm just not very good at this it's not really my forte it hasn't been the place where i've shone the most i think that's still so hard for people to say
1: Yes, and it, it is hard. It's incredibly hard to say I really wanted to be a mother and then I became one and frankly, it isn't what I thought it would be. But the thing about any kind of parenting, whether you're a mother or a father, it changes. Does I mean, sometimes people enjoy the first couple of years and find the toddling experience really hard. And then everybody says, oh, it's great when they're seven and nine. And sometimes it is, but it might not be. And then other people find the adolescent years horrible. And then some people um, don't enjoy kids in their 20s and 30s and I don't know. I mean, it just it's not, it's not the job that it starts off being. Yes, it's not a, it's,
0: it, it's, I hear what you say.
1: It's not, not a phrasing. definitive thing. No, it's not a definitive thing. And in the end, the best you can hope for is a situation in which you actively look forward to being with your children.
0: Yeah.
1: And, I mean, some people just don't have very nice children. That's the other thing. Um, you know, children that actually, I mean, I, I think it is a taboo for somebody, let's say somebody of 75 to turn around and say, I can't stand my 52 year old daughter. I just can't bear her. She's a pain in the neck. And always has been. Would that would that be allowed? Has that happened? <laughs> I'm not 52 <laughs> and my mother isn't 75. No,
0: but I think you raise a, a, a very good point. I, no, I don't think you can say that. And I think that um, that children of parents who do say things like that or infer things like that or can just sense that that's what has been felt are mm. damaged, obviously, yes. yeah, of which is a horrible thing to say. But back mm. to Anne's point, I think a lot of people don't ever want to say uh, something bad about the parenting ideal because they love their children even if they haven't, even if they can recognise that they haven't been great at being a parent. And those are those are two different things. Mm. And you don't want to damage your child by saying, do you know what, mm. I just wasn't particularly good at the parenting thing. It takes a lot for people to say that. Yeah, And the gaslighting involved in parents who won't say that I think can hurt children too.
1: Yes, but I would hate anybody to feel that they, I don't know, had, had lost out on membership of the world's greatest club just because they didn't have children. Yeah, or I... it's the undervaluing of caring when it's oh, not gosh. about children, absolutely. which I think Anne's absolutely right to point yeah, out. Yes, no, very, very much so. Thank you for that, Anne, because it was, if he's right, it was a lovely email and we were very, very happy to receive it. And please do keep your thoughts coming, Jane and Fee at times.radio. I was talking yesterday about. About prizes and my my joy at winning a tenor in the first ever lottery but nothing since. Um, Caroline says, Dear Jane and Fee, I won a bottle of red wine at my school's welly boot throwing competition in Wokingham. I was 12. <laughs> um, it was a fate that was opened by a successful politician then and now.
0: We need to know. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be difficult to name that. That's not libelous or
1: slanderous or difficult. Um, come on, Caroline. No, it's not difficult to name a politician who opened a fate in Wokingham unless money in a brown envelope changed hands. No, and I don't think it would be
0: on the it wouldn't be on the politician that she won a bottle of wine at the age of twelve.
1: <laughs> no, it wouldn't.
0: There are often just really terrible things on raffles, aren't there? At you know, your local
1: street party or your yeah. local fete. So it's always Lily of the Valley talc, isn't it? Well, well, there's just too much hand cream. Or an always hand cream, and I can't use it because of my mild eczema. Mm. So it's not the gift I ever want. I won't use it because I hate it. I'd like there to be a moratorium
0: on hand cream. I'd like there to be one day where everybody in enormous bins, probably outside Waitrose, can just hand in (laughs) hand cream. An amnesty. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because there are ju- just drawers across the world there full of right. hand cream from nineteen seventy
1: three. Yes, I think that's, I think you raise a very good point there. Let's have a national hand cream amnesty and there should be big bins and you can just throw it. Or well, there'd be just an absolute sea of gloop.
0: Yeah. You just I? squirt it all in yep. and then chuck your bottles in to be recycled. Yeah, lovely.
1: Let's let's do it. Yeah. Be proud. Get out there.
0: I'm sure we could do it in aid of something, but I don't know who'd really want to buy the dead hand cream.
1: No, I can't <laughs> think of anyone either. What? Why do? I mean, I'm. I'm. The, it's the world's most boring. This isn't political. This comment that was about, but the world's most boring saga is Nigel Farage's bank account. Oh, it really is. <laughs> it's, it's the story. I just want it to stop. And today, it's come back a little bit, and now I've mentioned it again, but only because it's really irritating me. Right, I've got it off my chest and I feel better now. Congratulations to England, who beat China 6-1. I was listening to the commentary all the way, on the way to work, and then for the first, its frankly, the hour and a bit, I was at work today, and it looks like England have found their form at last. But No, don't say that. Well, I'm just going to say that Nigeria, apparently they really fancy their chances, and that's next Monday. So, I don't know. Anyway, everything crossed.
0: Do you like watching a match at... uh, because it's eight thirty, isn't it? Yeah. On Monday, Do you, in the morning. Do you
1: like? Can can you get really, really, really excited at an early uh, morning game? Yes, I'm not bothered. For an international tournament, I'd be okay. happy with. I quite. I rather like the excitement of watching outside normal hours. Do you? Yes. What a free song that must be. <laughs> it is. You have a nice cup of tea. Yes. And a bagel. Listen, if you're me, that, and I will have my bagel. Yeah, I'll have yeah. my bagel along with it. Mm. Yeah
0: um go on well claire has sent a lovely email i've just been listening to your story about your only ever first win on the lottery jane you must be overdue for another win soon and talking of overdue very nice link claire yep. it took me straight back to that night in november 1994 when at two weeks overdue with my first child i lay in the operating theater bracing myself for a terrifying emergency cesarean Everything that could go wrong went wrong, and as I lay there ready to be opened up, some bright spark remarked, Oh, they've just done the draw for the lottery at which point the entire medical staff started asking who had and hadn't bought a ticket and what numbers everyone had chosen. That then followed a few moments of fumbling in pockets underneath their scrubs for their tickets to check if they'd won, while somebody left the room to ask what the winning numbers were. At this point, as the scalpel was slicing through my abdomen and uterus, nice detail, the modesty screen, erected to save me from the view below, slid off its tracks oh. and fell to the floor. Claire. No one seemed to notice and I ended up having to prop it up myself whilst the numbers 30, 3, 5, 44, 14 and 22 were read aloud. It was a moment of high farce and one I shall never forget as they pulled my beautiful baby boy out into the world. The doctor cried, blimey, it's a whopper, referring to my beloved baby, not the jackpot. My firstborn weighed in at a glorious £10, two ounces. I like to think that I won the lottery that night. Oh, well,
1: she did. That's lovely.
0: You did. That's just a fantastic story, really beautifully told, Claire. And thank you for sharing it with us. And £10, two ounces, mm. sweetheart, I'm wincing there with you. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, that uh, that must have just been an enormous stomach you had on you there. If I can just
1: be well, honest. Well, that's beautifully phrased. <laughs> Right.
0: Well, I had a £9, 10-ounce one, and I was
1: huge,
0: Jane. You just could have, honestly, I looked like a rugby ball. I was just every which way, apart from my
1: feet and my head, was just huge. Did you go out like that? Not really. No. Not for about the last month, actually. No, no, yes, I didn't do a lot of, uh, a lot of, I wouldn't have travelled the world, let's put it that way. No, and I Um, did get to that stage, actually, where
0: I had to waddle from side to side. I couldn't really walk. Forwards, not mm. to go. You know, at a kind of oh, diagonal. I'd
1: weave, okay, <laughs> on every step. <laughs> Um this is from a listener who says i was interested when you and anna richardson uh, said a topic don't pe- that people don't like to admit to is not much interest in sex i agree that it's hard to say something like that but i actually think there are other personality traits which are hard to justify to others i'm in my 30s and i decided to be teetotal at the age of 19 and it was so hard it felt like i was forever having to admit some kind of dirty secret I was frequently challenged and men often seemed to think it was their night's aim to get me to have a drink, cajoling and trying to encourage me. Student years were really hard. I loved my sports clubs but hated being expected to do initiations or frequent boozy nights. Tournaments away from home would leave me in a strange city having loved the sport but not wanting to go dancing or get drunk and then unable to get home. Also, and perhaps related, I didn't and don't like dancing in clubs. I've had so many people thank me for getting them home or being chauffeur when we were teens. I have no regrets, and it's easier than ever for me now to say no to an invite, as I'm so happy in my identity, and I'll say to friends, no thanks, I just wouldn't enjoy that. Right, I mean I think that's that's interesting. I think if, if that kind of really high octane social life is not for you, And if I'm honest, it's not really for me. I think it is really brave to just say, no, I I don't think I will enjoy that. I won't go. Very much so. Um, So more power to you. I think not drinking as a student. And I appreciate there are people from uh, religious backgrounds where they wouldn't drink anyway. I I cannot imagine what navigating your student years alcohol free is like. I would find it. It must be extremely difficult.
0: Yes, more and more uh, young people are becoming teetotal, choosing not to drink, Mm, aren't they? I think it's one in four 18 to 25-year-olds
1: in the country now don't drink. Is that one in four? Is that right? Well, if you go, uh, particularly in London, if you're travelling around London late at night, it's astonishing how many people are sitting, you know, in those um, places that just sell very sweet puddings and ice creams and shakes they're open till late and they're obviously catering for groups of young people who for whom alcohol plays no part in their social life whatsoever and then there are lots of branches of the coffee chains that are open really late as well aren't they yeah do do you think you just wouldn't have got through
0: student life if you hadn't had the dutch courage of booze i
1: think i probably not well i would have found it harder definitely yeah I think that's probably true of anybody who went to university in the 1980s can you imagine really navigating that stone cold sober no
0: no extremely difficult but it's a good point as well that even even back in our day Jay, yes uh everything what revolved, a day it was every student activity revolved around cheap booze yeah you know come to student student night at uh at studio three New York had Studio Fifty Four. Canterbury had Studio Three. Canterbury, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Student night was student night, not really for the tunes, just for the cheap booze. Mm. And student union night was cheap booze. Mm. Everything was cheap you booze. Get Perno and black
1: for thirty p you? got
0: you in. Well, actually, we had vodka and lime for a pound. So oh, that's really? the difference, isn't that's it? The five-year difference. You see, it's crucial. Very much. So. Shall we introduce oh, our guests? Great nights on the dance floor at Studio Three. Then, actually, what was I the top
1: track, at Studio Three?
0: Oh, God, good question. Well, we were doing an 80s playlist, weren't we? Because we'd been yes. invited oh, on yes. to Virgin Pride. To... Heaven 17, now oh, there was a band. Oh, that's a good dance. Pen penthouse well. and Pavement. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what would be your favourite Heaven 17 track?
1: Uh, well, we don't need this fascist groove thing.
0: Really? Mm. And could you get a jog onto that?
1: Uh, you could, yes. Where we can play the 12-inch dance mix and you get the whole floor packed at the University of Birmingham. Good Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just apropos of absolutely nothing,
0: one of the one of the tracks on my 80s playlist called Happy Days is uh, is Aztec Cameras Oblivious. I just love it. Absolutely oh, yes. love it. And I haven't yeah. listened to it for years. It's not really there because it was an all-time favourite mm. when it first came out, but I'm playing it every day at the moment. I get, do you get stuck on things?
1: Well, that's why I, for years and years, and this is the truth, I did play Life is a Roller Coaster by Roland Keating. I, I have recently fought that off. I'm very proud. Well, well done. I've been to group and we've talked it through. You've been three years clean, <laughs> not quite three years, but certainly this week. Right. Um, our guest today is Sir Nicholas Mostyn. Now he was a very interesting guest, as it turned out. The longest-serving second—I should get this clear—that make this clear—the second longest-serving High Court judge, and at one time, at uh, the best-paid divorce barrister in England. And actually, we're really keen to get him back because there was loads of stuff we didn't get uh, the chance to ask him. But perhaps more importantly, these days. He has just retired, as you'll hear in the interview. He's one of the co-hosts of the Movers and Shakers podcast, which is about living with Parkinson's disease because he was diagnosed about four years ago with Parkinson's. You'll know that the other uh, people involved in that podcast include Jeremy Paxman, Rory Catherine Jones, Gillian Lacey-Solimar. They're a group of journalists, really, who've got together. And Nicholas Mostyn is the legal brains of the whole thing and he keeps the rest of them in order. It's a hugely helpful helpful podcast if Parkinson's is playing a part in your life. So we asked him, who was in charge? Was it really him? Who was in charge of this podcast?
2: There's been some debate about that, but it was my idea.
1: Right. Well, in that case, I... So I
2: I do claim that... the that right.
1: Okay, and as a former High Court judge, as of last week, you should be in charge, it's as simple as that.
2: (laughs) Yes, well, (laughs) maybe, but the the others don't seem to agree all the time. No, I
1: mean, it's funny uh, you mention, because Jeremy Paxson perhaps isn't the easiest to control. no, No, I mean,
2: I, it's it's been quite transformational because in court 50, I'm not, when I start talking, I expect people to stop talking, but it's not, it doesn't happen on the podcast, that's, for sure. <laughs> that's good.
1: So you're getting a taste of your own medicine. It's
2: absolutely.
1: Uh, you were, the, I think this is right, the second longest serving high court judge, correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who beat you?
2: No, the, he's called Peter Roth. He's the senior high court judge. Right. And he was appointed a, a, a few weeks before me.
1: Okay. And yeah. at one time, you were the best paid divorce barrister in the land. That's true. Right. That was a long time ago. No, but a, a no mean boast, <laughs> I would say. Um, so you have now stopped your legal career. You I have. that ended last week? Ended on Friday. And how how was that? Was that very strange?
2: It was very strange indeed. Um, I I had a little book which I'd started when I my and I wrote down my first case which was on the 9th of June uh, uh 1981 42 years ago in the Edmonton County Court and my entire life for those 42 years since I've been doing cases. And that stopped on Friday. So it's a rather a strange feeling. And there will be no more cases. Uh,
1: so, yeah, and no, that's a huge... A, um, a chasm has opened yeah, up in your, mm. in your mind, presumably. Because I, I don't imagine that you go home and then forget about everything. You can't, can No, you? no, no. So there are... I mean, you remember that first case, do you? I do. What was it about?
2: It was a domestic violence case. <laughs> there's actually, there's quite a funny story about it. I was sent to the Edmonton County Court to represent somebody who'd been arrested for breach of a power of arrest... Uh, in the, under the Domestic Violence Act and he'd been brought before a judge to be dealt with and I was sent up there to represent him and I stood up and I burbled away to the judge at the end said uh, stand up, he said you're in plain breach of the injunction, you should be sent to prison but your, your defence has been so lamentable that it would be a travesty of justice if I were to send you down so I claim that to be a... Brilliant strategic victory, but that was how I
1: began. So an inglorious start. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and at the time, I imagine that things like domestic violence were treated very, very differently. Oh, yes. Uh, with, with indifference or contempt. What, what was the view of... of... Well, I
2: mean, there was this terrible view that women were responsible, that uh, they brought it on themselves. It was, I mean, you have no idea how, what a prim- primitive world it was in that sense. And... I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that progress has been made, but I, I'm still not convinced that it's a very equal place, the, the way that... The...
1: Well, I th- I th- rape in marriage was only made illegal in the 1990s, it, I think, it wasn't, was it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was, yeah. And it was, it was the judges who did this.
1: Right. And yes, it, so was, it, w- it wasn't Parliament. No, yet. it wasn't Parliament. Yeah. No, I mean, that, when you think about that, that is extraordinary, isn't That's
2: extraordinary. Well, it's because of the legal theory that goes back to Blackstone, that when you, when you marry, you become unified with your husband, you become a part of him and owned by him, so, mm. so consent is deemed. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. It took until, I think it was, I think it was Lord, Lord Simon Brown, who recently died, who did the first case. He refused to allow a prosecution for... Um, he, he insisted on a prosecution proceeding for marital rape.
1: And um, without that we yeah, wouldn't I mean, have had it's, that change. That's extraordinary, really. Yeah. Well, perhaps we'll talk more about your legal career in, in a couple of moments, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. But if, if you don't mind, and I don't think you yeah. do, talking about your Parkinson's... No, I don't. Yeah. Your, your approach to it has been, it seems to me, astonishingly robust, in a way. Um, you are still a fit man. I mean, apparently you can plank <laughs> for the duration of the Taylor Swift song, Antihero. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to have a blast of that now. I have a thing it's quite a long song. Three minutes isn't and it? twenty seconds. It's a lovely song, too. Yeah. It's a great song. Great <laughs> song. And you're a big fan of. But she's Baker. a great
2: lyricist, isn't she? She is. I, I think her music's quite vanilla, but I mean, I think. I beg your her, I mean, I think. I and mean, it's I can't not Vargas, correctly, is it? it it's but, not Vargas.
1: No, <laughs> we <laughs> will end the interview <laughs> right now.
2: But I think her, her, her lyrics are. Absolutely brilliant.
1: Yeah, no, she's an absolute yeah. star. Yeah. I, I don't think mm-hmm. she actually needs the endorsement of either you or no, me, no, no, frankly. No, absolutely not.
2: Absolutely not. Oh, yeah. um,
1: but you are stopping your legal work partly because you want—I think—you want some good years. Um yes. tell, tell me about. Well, I, that.
2: I, I, want, I want to go out at the top. Yeah. And um, I just feel that I'm. I, there is a sort of obvious decline. I can't write anymore. And I can not type really well anymore. And so I do need this assistance in order to be able to do cases. I have to have a permanent assistant, which they give me. Judicial office give me, which is very good. Um, I, and, but I, even so, I just feel, I just feel that I want, want to go when I'm in good shape and when I can put in the bank some good years of retirement. I mean, I do five more years in court 50 and then if I fell off a cliff, that would, you know, I would just feel I'd have missed some good, time. Mm. good years of retirement when I can do some productive things, particularly on the Parkinson's front. I really want to do some, I want to take the podcast and develop it so yeah. that we do more things on the Parkinson's front to try and make life more tolerable for people who are recently diagnosed. Because it is, they're just, most of them are abandoned and are desperate in Not most of them, but a lot of them
1: are. Yeah. Yeah. I think you you were on a family holiday when your... Was it your son noticed a tremor? Mm Yeah.
2: You can see the tremor. I can (laughs) that, yes, I can (laughs) that, yeah. yeah.
1: Is it continual?
2: It's worse when I'm stressed and you're frightening me.
1: (laughs) Well, it's not the first time I've frightened a high court judge, to be honest. (laughs) No. It's a speciality, especially on a Tuesday, <laughs> I offer a special service. No.
0: When, when your son did notice that, uh, did you? was he recognising something that deep down you had not wanted to kind of challenge yourself oh, yes, about?
2: I, 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 I'm a very positive person. i would noticed this tremor, this shaking, and I just dismissed it as... Uh, because I'd heard that there was such a thing as a benign tremor. I looked that up and I said, it must be a benign tremor. I'm not going to get it. And so I'd been ignoring it. But Gregory said, "You've really got to get that checked out. It's not funny." And uh, so I did. So I did that October, and um, <laughs> neurologist. You know, I was talking about I want to do something, I really, really want to try and improve. We're all agreed, the um, bedside manner and the way that the news is delivered by neurologists, which is it's just not, um, it's unbelievable. But um, the neurologist went to see, went to see. Told me that he said, "I um, well, said, so what is it going to mean?" He said, "It's likely you will be in a wheelchair in five years."
1: Okay. He, he really did say it said, like it's not, that. Yeah, he
2: did. I said I beg your pardon. He said it's li- likely you'll be in a wheelchair in five years. I said, what do you mean likely? He said twenty percent chance. I said, that's not likely. That's unlikely. That means it's five times it's five times four times more likely I won't be in a wheelchair than in a wheelchair. But that's the sort of that's the sort of example of um of, uh, I had it and the others, all the others on the podcast. I mean, the new the way the news is imparted, and that's that is a, a problem. I mean there are a hundred and 70,000 people with, with the diagnosis. And, uh, and so I really do feel quite committed to mm. do something else, which is to...
1: to yes, it's very, it's very worrying to me that, that the rest of the contributors to the podcast, um, I, don't, um, I don't mean any disrespect by this, you are all very well-connected, mm-hmm. middle-class, articulate mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And if that's the way you are treated, how are, how are other people with Parkinson's well, spoken I, well, to? Well, there's them? no national strategy
2: at all for it. And the local strategies are all different. Mm. Some of them have Parkinson's nurses, some don't. So they, none of the neurologists even prescribe the same drugs or at the same rate. I mean, there's, there is no national strategy at all. There, there is a bill in Congress in the US to have a national strategy at the moment, but there is there is none, none, and there's none proposed in this country. So that's that's our ambition is to try and get some national standards.
0: And we talk about Parkinson's just using that one word, but how different might one person's experience of the disease be to another's?
2: Well, I mean, um, 30% of people with the condition, Parkies, do not have a tremor. So, I mean, the image of a Parkie is somebody with a tremor, which which you can see Mm. me doing, but 30% don't. And (laughs) of the 30% seem to be a high proportion with what's called postural instability, which is otherwise known as falling over. Now, that is a really, really psychologically debilitating position to be in. And of course, Jeremy's spoken about this publicly and it must be really tough for him um it really tough for him having that and then the other big big symptom which is across the board is depression um i i i have not ever been afflicted by depression but the other five have all had it to a greater or lesser extent and it sounds i mean you people talk about depression they sort of think about people being a bit down don't they it's completely different it's a completely disabling condition Mm. and that's a very very uh pronounced And, and then of course the uh, looking down the track, the, you know, the risks of dementia are th- three times that it, it is for people without the condition. Cognition is badly affected, so um, it's, it would be... There are th- apparently a 1,000 different ways in which Parkinson's can express itself in somebody who's got it.
1: And is it becoming
2: more common? Well, I mean, there's, is it being better diagnosed? Mm. Or is it a higher incidence? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I would say there are 160,000 people who have been diagnosed. I put quite a lot of money on there being an equivalent number undiagnosed. And they haven't got any drugs, the undiagnosed ones, so I don't know how they're coping, but there must be lots of them.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: VoiceOver on, settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility, there's more to iPhone.
1: sometimes I think some of Fee's observations made off-air would make cracking broadcast content. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd never
0: have to see me again. <laughs> Another advantage. Uh, we are talking
1: to a re- very recently retired High Court Judge Nicholas Mostyn, who is one of the stars, there's no other word for it, of the podcast Movers and Shakers, which is intended for people with Parkinson's disease, whether you've had it for a while, uh, whether you've recently been diagnosed, whether somebody you care about uh, has Parkinson's, you will really appreciate the content of Movers and Shakers, and it's on all good podcast platforms, isn't it, Nicholas? That's the kind of phraseology you're going to have to get used to. It is. uh, uh,
2: Learning the language. Yeah, excellent.
1: Um, Let's talk about um, the family division and your your work in Mm -hmm. the family courts, because this is an area that most people actually, if you're fortunate, know very little about this part of the law. Um, What is the family court for? Well, the,
2: the family court as a court was only established about 10 years ago. Before that, family justice was distributed in a random way between the High Court which has three divisions, one of which is called the Family Division. It was originally called the Probate, Divorce and Admiralty Division. Can you imagine you did all those three things together? And then it, and it morphed in 1970, I think, into the Family Division, which did the big, important cases. And then the rest of the family justice was done in the county court, So right. next to, to, by the judges who were doing possession proceedings and things. And we thought, well, this is, you know, we really deserve to have a, proper, a dedicated family court. So under, in 19... 10 years ago, under Cameron... They brought in the family court, so, which took all the county court jurisdiction and the magistrate's court jurisdiction and put it into one dedicated court. It looked pretty much like the old court, but it was one dedicated court. And since then, they've created some subcourts, which was, I was the um, architect helped, I'm sorry, that sounds a bit... Um, boastful i helped to form the financial remedies court which is the court that deals with the matrimonial finance the fi- you know the financial aspects of divorce and so we founded that about four three or four years ago and that's been actually a great success mm. oh, great success but course at the whole of the justice system that needs more money it does need more yes money. i mean the, the it whole... needs more money yeah um
1: uh. what do you think is the i mean it's quite a difficult question this what is the biggest challenge facing the court system at the moment the
2: biggest the biggest challenge facing the court system at the is, is: it has not got enough money. It's not so, for example, in the staff in the, that make that without which the court cannot work. There are not enough staff. We're supposed in the family division to have, I think, nineteen staff in our office. I think we've got eight. So I mean, papers just stay. They move. They they don't go from A to B. Courts don't get opened, and so that's the first thing. There are not, we don't have enough judges. So that people turn people who have absolutely been preparing for their case for six months. if That's the date in the diary. Mm. They've instructed a barrister, scraped the money together to instruct a barrister, got everything ready, turn up on the day. Sorry, we haven't got a judge. Go away. Come back in another six, six to nine months' time.
1: And these are really difficult cases, aren't these they? These are really difficult yeah, cases. But lives. I think the
2: substantive law is pretty good. Right. I think the procedural law, I would say that because I hope to write most a lot of it, is I think is is good. I think it really, people like that like it. They like the. The guidance that had been given, but it is just is uh, is underfunded.
1: Mm. Um, can we just talk a little bit... I mean, you mentioned earlier in the way we talk about domestic violence, for example, mm. how much has changed. But it wasn't that long ago that I think only men had any right whatsoever to a legitimate child. And this is about 100 years no, ago. That's a long time ago. A long time ago. Well, actually, in the great uh, scheme of things, not uh, that long ago. You know, the
2: Custody and, of Infants Act. Yes. The and old, then, in the 1830s. Right. We gave a woman a right to access, didn't give the right to custody. Cust- Custody of Infants Act. It was not until the Gardenship and Minors Act in 1925 that put them on an equal footing. And, then and there were some terrible decisions, you know, but babies being plucked from their mothers' bosoms to take them away—abominable decisions that were mm. made in the early 1900s.
1: But then we were also told for many years that men had no chance. I mean, it was everything was stacked against them in the divorce courts, for example. Women got everything. Women got the children, the house, and far too much money. Well,
2: there was that. There was that rumor, and there was one judge who—he had been dead a long time now—called Lord Justice Ormrod, who was was very, very pro-women and, it, and it, it was portrayed as being an unfair system, but in fact it was just reflective of reality. If you have, if you have a marriage that's broken down, one small house that can't be divided into two houses with a woman with children, and he's got a job and she's looking after the children, well, then it's rather going to look like the result, isn't it, that she gets everything because she stays there with the children he has to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the way it was. Right? And
0: how do you think... But that that
2: that's changed now.
0: But, ..that children fare now in the family courts in this country? Do we do better for children than other well,
2: countries? Well, it's funny, I was, just, I was just leaving the other day and a fellow judge... Um, exploded. I won't say who it is, um, but exploded. She said that the system is grinding to a halt because with the app passing of the Domestic Abuse Act, which came into force last year, um, in all, in many, many, many cases now, domestic abuse is being raised as an issue. Um, and in so many cases now, there are very substantial trials being ordered of the facts. So we can't work out if a man should be allowed to see his children until we've had a full trial of the facts which go on for days and days and days with the result that the men are not allow- allowed to see the children because there's a prima facie case of abuse not allowed to see the children unsupervised while a case takes what 80 months to 2 years so it it is these it, these fat finding cases which mm-hmm. have been a consequence of the domestic abuse I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that this is wrong but I'm just saying this is what
1: is happening so just sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. but these are men who and then not always men of course but in some case most cases mm-hmm. they are men mm-hmm. who have not been found criminally no. No. responsible, no. but their partner is accusing that's them alleging, of As right. alleging domestic abuse. And oh. during that
0: time they will have very poor access they to will, their really children. They will, supervised
1: access, yeah. you know, normally.
2: Not, often, not necessarily always, but often supervised contact. Uh, and then the system takes a long time to determine the facts.
1: Mm.
2: And this, this is, I don't know, well, we've got to try and work out how to manage this, this phenomenon.
1: That was our guest today, the very recently retired High Court judge, Sir Nicholas Mostyn. And uh, we are definitely going to book him again, um, certainly when anything legal is in the news. But maybe just to talk around some of the issues involved in the family courts, because um, it's a never ending. um, Well, there are all sorts of controversies connected to the family courts. And also, lest we forget, just some incredibly sad, very, very sad sets of circumstances that end up there and at times as well the disgraceful behaviour of uh, divorcing people who uh, just cannot behave properly mm. and just seem to lose sight of the bigger picture.
0: Well, as nearly, uh, it's almost one in two couples uh, ending in divorce now, isn't it? And I know not all of those will end up in, in family court. No. It's only the most contentious ones that do. But it's an area that we just need to know more about. Mm. And for so many couples to end up having to go through that process without knowing what happens in court, yeah. I think is really unhelpful. And I didn't realise that the changes in the system were quite so recent. Yeah, no Yeah, Yeah. So loads to talk about. He was a great guest. It was really lovely to meet him. Um, Shall I just run through a very quick list of some of the suggestions for the book club? But I think we've got enough and we're going to make our decision tomorrow. But thank you very much indeed to Hannah, who suggested How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. Uh, Nigel has suggested The Lie or the Great Coat. Uh, by the wonderful helen dunmore oh yes and nigel says love the show from nigel yes Nigel a 70s child not many of us post 2000 none last year horror oh. emoji Oh,
1: Nigel. Nigel we're here for be you be
0: proud uh, the exiles or the dry by Jane Harper that comes from Megan we love a Jane
1: Harper yes I like the dry a lot uh,
0: Julie in Oslo says the Twyford code by Janice Hallett or human croquet by Kate Atkinson p.s. I've cited Joe Nesbo live a couple of times did he have his hat on a Simple Plan by Scott Smith comes in from Gail and Lee Brown suggests The Witness by Nora Roberts. So thank you very much indeed for all of those and we will announce what we're all reading uh, on the
1: podcast tomorrow. OK, have a very good evening. Enjoy Barbie. Thank you. There's been so little mentioned, head heard about I I, I've got no idea what you can expect.
0: I feel it's on me to explain it, You don't
1: even know who's in it. Mm. Anyway, tell me tomorrow. Good evening. I know ladies.
0: A lady listener. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone Disassembly Robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.